I want to talk with you this morning about desperation, faith, and the dirty feet of a Galilean carpenter. At 10 years of age, I wanted to go to a baseball camp in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. I loved baseball. And my family was a middle, lower middle income family, so it wasn't the kind of money that my, my parents were just going to say, okay, you can go. It was several hundred dollars for the week. But there were going to be retired baseball players running the camp. There were going to be uh, baseball players, current players coming in to, uh, coming in to speak. I, I wanted to go. I was desperate to go. I begged and pleaded and did everything I could to try and convince them that their very financial future hung in the balance of their 10-year-old son going to baseball camp. And while I don't think they ever bought that lie or that, uh, that premise, uh, they, did let me, they did let me go. But you know, as, as you mature in age, and particularly the older that you, you get, the things that you become desperate about and the things that you begin to beg for are a little bit more than just going to baseball camp, as important as that is to a, to a 10-year-old boy. It, it's sitting by the bedside of a dying child who's, who's getting the, the, the last doses of an experimental drug that will either work or not work. And sitting by that bedside and pouring your heart out to God in desperation, please use this and heal my child. It's a wife who's been abandoned by her husband and has just put her children to bed and collapses on the floor and calls out to God, please restore my family. A faithful, godly, holy woman of faith crying out in desperation, do the impossible and bring my husband back. Well, we find in the, in the passage we're going to look at this morning those very concepts, desperation, faith, and the added idea of the dirty feet of a Galilean carpenter. But as we work our way there, we need to think our way back for just a moment. The Gospel of Mark, at least in the first eight chapters, describes Jesus as a miracle worker, not in those words, but in the stories that he tells. For example, in Mark 1, 21 to 28, Jesus cast a demon out of a man in a Capernaum synagogue. In chapter 1, 29 to 31, Jesus goes to the home of Simon Peter, and he heals his mother-in-law. In chapter 1, verses 32 through 35, everybody in Capernaum brings their sick and the, and the demonized to, to the place where Jesus is staying, and he casts out demons and he heals the, heals the sick. In chapter 1, verse 40 through 45, he takes Peter, Andrew, James, and John, and he makes a preaching circuit through Galilee. And one of the stories that he tells is Jesus healing a man of leprosy. He comes back to Capernaum, and in chapter 2, 1 through 11, the crowds are just flocking to him, and they lower a paralyzed man through the roof on a mat before him, and he heals that paralyzed man. In chapter 3, 1 through 6, he's in a synagogue. There's a man with a, with a shriveled hand, a withered hand, a, a paralyzed hand, and, and Jesus heals him. In chapter 3, 7 through 11, Mark gives us a summary of Jesus' ministry up to this point, and it's astounding. People are coming from Tyre and Sidon, the Mediterranean coast, from the north and the south. They're flocking to this land they had never been to before to find this carpenter who is renowned as a miraculous healer and an exorcist, and he's, 
And they, they gather around him, he casts out demons, and he heals the sick. And then in chapter 3, verses 12 through 19, he calls 12 men to be his apostles, to be his disciples. Then the most unfathomable thing happens in chapter 3, 20 through the end of the chapter. Chapter 20 through, uh, chapter 3, verse 19, uh, 19, actually 20 through 34. His family thinks he's out of his mind and his enemies think he's demon-possessed. Stunning. The things I've recounted are the things that he did. His family thinks he's out of his mind. His enemies think he's demonized. Why? How in the world can you think that about him? Well, he explains it in a series of parables in chapter 4, 1 through 34. And the most important of the parables, you're familiar with it, probably the parable of the sower. In the parable of the sower, Jesus is a farmer, and the seed that he's sowing is the good news of the kingdom. Some of it falls on hard hearts, hard soil, and Satan comes in and scoops it up. Some of it falls on shallow soil, shallow hearts. And what happens is they, they're all on board until they get a little pushback, until there's a little bit of ostracism, before there's a little bit of people uh, deriding their commitment, and they, 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 they fall away just as quickly as they jumped on board. And then there's the people of a cluttered heart. Uh, they embrace the teaching of Jesus initially, but the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, the desire for other things, it comes in and it chokes out the work of the wor uh, Word. That's why some are saying he's out of his mind and others are saying he's got a demon. And then there were the, the people with the soft hearts, the good soil, and they, they received the Word like the disciples, and they bear fruit 30, 60, and a, and a hundredfold. Well, after that very long day of teaching, in verse 35, he gets into a boat to go across the Sea of Galilee, uh, to go into non-Jewish territory, and he falls asleep. He is very tired. And so he says in verse 35, at the end of it, let us, let us cross over to the other side of the sea. He falls asleep, and it's not uncommon for storms to come up very quickly in this, on the Sea of Galilee. It's 600 feet below sea level. It's surrounded by low-lying hills, and, and the wind can whirl and sw uh, sweep around that, uh, that basin. And it says in verse 37, a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking over the boat so that the boat was already being swamped. And so Jesus is asleep in the stern, and so you'll notice with me in verse 38, at the end of it, they say, teacher, don't you care that we're going to die? I don't know about you, but I, I can relate to that. I, I have wondered at times in my Christian life if, if Jesus really did care about what was going on in my life. It was difficult. It was hard. It was disappointing. It was arduous. I hadn't planned for it. I hadn't expected it, and I didn't think I deserved it. And here they are, teacher, don't you care that we're going to die? Then he does what no other human being has ever done. He stood up, probably boistered on either side by men hold, holding him as the waves are crashing over the boat. The wind is blowing in like a tsunami. And he says, silence, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he turns and he looks at the, the men that he 
had recently called to be his apostles, and he says, why are you afraid? Circle that word afraid. Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? Circle the word faith. Fear and faith are going to be very important in each of these stories we're going to to work through. And notice their response, their whisper to one another, who then is this? Even the wind and the sea obey him. That's been the question throughout human history since A.D. 30. Who in the world is he? Well, the next story answers the question for us. The next story is they get off on dry ground and get near Gadara. And immediately it says, immediately in verse 2, a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. He lived among the tombs and no one was able to bind him anymore, not even with chain, because he, he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him and the shackles broken in pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. Constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains and cutting himself with stones. And then the most phenomenal thing happens. Seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him. Underline that phrase, bow down before him. The demonized man bows at the dirty feet of the Galilean carpenter. And the demon answers the question the disciples have just asked, who is this man? Notice what the demon says in verse 7. What business do you have with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I implore you, underline that word, I implore you, I beg you, I plead with you. By God, do not torment me. Demons are cowards. They're terrified of Jesus and his authoritative spokespersons. And then notice with me in verse 12, and the demons begged him, begged him, and they implored him. In the earlier comment in verse 8, they implore him, they beg him. They don't want to be sent out of the area. So he permits them to go into the pigs, and the pigs rush into the sea, and it's mysterious, and, and we wonder all kinds of things about it. But let's press on. Look with me in verse 15. After he allows the pigs to, to be inhabited by the demons, and the pigs go into the Sea of Galilee, and they drown, those that have been watching are stunned. It says, and when they came to Jesus and saw the man who had been demon-possessed sitting down, clothed in his right mind, the very man who had previously had the legion, they became frightened, just like the disciples. The disciples on the Sea of Galilee were terrified. The townspeople who have watched Jesus cast the demons, not demon, demons and demons and demons, legion of demons out of the man, they're terrified. So what do they do in verse 17? They begin to beg him. There's our word. They begin to beg him, plead with him to leave their region. And as he was getting into the boat, he's leaving the region. The man who had been demon-possessed, he had been naked, he had been demonized, he had been tormented, he had been uncontrollable, he had been unbelievably strong. The man who had been demonized was begging him. The demons begged him, don't send us out of the land. The people begged him, please leave. The once demonized man begs him, let me go with you. 
How can you blame him? I want to go wherever you go. I want to do whatever you do. And Jesus did not let him, but said to him, Go home to your people and report to them the great things the Lord has done and how, you had, and how he had mercy on you. And he went away to the region of the Decapolis to proclaim the great things that Jesus had done. Jesus says, go tell them the great things God has done for you. He went and he told everyone that he knew. Family and friends that had not seen him in his right mind in a long, long time. All the great things Jesus had done for him. Well, now that brings us to where I want us to be for the last few minutes. Uh, a story about a desperate man and a desperate woman. The man's name is Jairus, and the woman is unnamed. And Jairus is between a rock and a hard place. Jairus isn't begging that Jesus will let him go to baseball camp. Jairus is begging that Jesus would not let his daughter die. I don't, I don't think I could ever fully empathize with Jairus because I've never lost a child. Notice his desperate plea. It says in verse 21, when Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the sea. One of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. The very place the demonized man went and begged him earnestly, just like the demonized man begged Jesus, let me go with you, just like the townspeople begged him, would you please leave, just like the demons begged him, don't send us away, let us go into the pigs, begged him, my little daughter is dying, come and lay your hands on her so that she can get well and live. So Jesus went with him and a large crowd was following and pressing against him. So Jesus is like a, he's like a rock star. I mean, everybody wants to touch him and talk to him and to hear him. And he's trying to maneuver his way through a crowd, but the little girl's dying. Every second matters. Her life is slipping away. She's on the precipice of going into eternity. So Jairus must have been fit to be tied. And then Jairus drops out of the picture. And in verse 25, we see a woman, an unnamed woman, a disenfranchised woman, a woman with a reputation, but it's not a justifiable reputation, a woman that's been bleeding for 12 years, a woman with a gynecological problem, and the Jews believe that your sin was exhibited by your sickness. It was a deplorable thing to believe. The disciples themselves believed it. Who sinned, they said in John chapter 9, this man or his parents that he would be born blind? Well, they're living in a fallen world. People are born blind. People get sick. But when you believe that your sickness replicates your sin, and with a bleeding uterus, everybody knew then what this woman was truly like. She appeared to be moral. She appeared to be upstanding. But no, she's been bleeding for 12 years. She is isolated. She is ostracized. She is disenfranchised. No one wants to come near to her because they themselves will then become ritually impure. They won't be able to go into the marketplace until a specified number of days have passed. And so this woman 
It's a woman of faith, great faith. Looking at her from the outside, she, she doesn't seem to be a woman of faith, but there's faith in her heart. She believes if she can touch Jesus' clothes, she can be healed. Everybody else is crowding him and pressing in on him, but she experiences his power. Many are in his presence, few experience his power. Many attend the services, few leave transformed and changed. What, what made the difference between the crowds that were touching him and the woman that touched him is her faith. Now, a woman suffering from bleeding for 12 years in verse 25 had endured much under many doctors. She has spent everything she had and was not helped at all. On the contrary, she became worse. She is emotionally broken, financially broke, destitute. She is in the worst of places. And to look from the outside, she's getting what she deserves. That would have been the mentality. That would have been the outlook. That would have been the thought. She had more faith than all of them put together. They were in his presence, but they never were changed by his power. This large crowd of people that he was trying to maneuver his way through. Having heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his clothing. Uh, for she said, if, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be made well. Instantly, the flow of blood ceased. And she sensed in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Immediately, Jesus realized the power had gone forth from him. He turns and he says, who touched me? The disciples say, you see the crowds pressing in on you, and you say, who touched you? The last time they asked a question, the question was, who is this man? Who touched you? Is that what you're asking? The woman realizes Jesus knows who she is. And notice in verse 33, she fell down before him. She's at the dirty feet of the Galilean carpenter. She's where Jairus had been. She's, she is where the once demonized man had been. And he says, daughter, your faith. Oh, there's that word again. He said to the disciples, where is your faith? He says to the woman, your faith has saved you. That is, she is healed physically saved, spiritually, go in peace, healed of your affliction. In all of this, Jairus has drifted into the background. His daughter is quickly catapulting toward eternity. And then he hears what must be the most painful words any parent could ever hear. Your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? He's not resuscitated anybody at this, up to this point. He's not raised anyone from the dead up to this point. There's absolutely no reason for Jairus to think Jesus is going to bring her back from death. Death is the end. Death is the period on this short life. In fact, she's only 12 years old. Uh, that's interesting, 12 years old. The woman had been sick for 12 years. Jesus speaks a word of hope. Notice with me in verse 36, he says at the end, don't be afraid, only believe. He takes the inner circle, Peter, James, and John. Jesus ministered to the masses. Out of the masses, he chose 12. Out of the 12, he chose three, Peter, James, and John. Peter will ultimately be crucified upside down. James will be the first apostle martyr. John will be, will be exiled to Patmos. It's dangerous to get too close to Jesus. 
But I think Peter, James, and John would say it's worth it. They go to the home of Jairus. Jesus has already spoken a word of hope. Now he speaks a word of revelation. The child is not dead, but asleep. Well, she's dead. There's no brain waves. There's no blood pulsating through her, through her body. But as she lays there, she, she looks like she's taking a nap. When Jesus says she's not dead, but asleep, he's going to awaken her out of death's sleep. And so he speaks a word of revelation. Everyone is moved out of the room. It's, it's Jairus, his wife, Peter, James, John, and Jesus. And look in verse 41. He says, Talitha kum. The very Aramaic, Jesus spoke Aramaic, Hebrew, and Greek. Jesus is speaking Aramaic. And it was so overwhelming, so powerful, so, so memorable that when the story was told, they told the actual words that Jesus used. You don't see somebody resuscitated from the dead every day. So he, he interprets it for us. Little girl, get up. He speaks a word of power. Little girl, get up. Little one, rise to your feet. Talitha kum. Get up. He speaks a word of power. And he gives her back to her parents. Well, what are we to take away from all of this? What are we to make of all of this? A storm at sea, a demonized man, a very sick woman, and a dead little girl. Let me say three things as we conclude in these last couple of moments. First, desperate people will find hope and help at the dirty feet of the Galilean carpenter. Desperate people will find hope and help at the dirty feet of the Galilean carpenter. Where did the demonized man go? To the feet of Jesus. Where did Jairus fall? At the feet of Jesus. Where did the woman go when she realized that she had been recognized by Jesus? To the feet of Jesus. Second, life's difficulties will either drive us to Jesus in faith or Satan will use those circumstances to drive us away from Jesus into hopelessness. Have you ever watched how two people, both believers, both, both love Jesus and they experience devastating circumstances and situations and, and, and one heartbroken and, and, and somewhat bewildered is able to navigate that terrain and to walk that very difficult portion of life and stay close to Jesus. But in these difficult seasons of life, Satan roams around like a roaring lion and he's waiting to pounce. And he wants to drive a hurting believer into hopelessness and darkness and despair and despondency. He wants to drive them from the people of God and he wants to separate them as best he can from the Son of God. He can't separate them from the Son of God because the Son of God will never abandon them. But they can live like he did. And so, we learn that there's, a, there's two pathways. One leads us to the feet of Jesus and the other into hopelessness. Third, what do we do when Jesus doesn't calm the storm and heal the sick? Or we could say, resuscitate the dead. What do we do when Jesus does not calm the storm and heal the sick? We have to trust that he has a plan. It's not our plan. 
It's not even an easy plan. Uh, but as, as Craig reminded us this morning, he loves us. He would never forsake us. In this life, we may not be able to see how the pieces of the puzzle fit together, but there's an eternity. And in eternity, we'll see why God allowed things to happen the way that he did. But in this life, there are times when he, he doesn't heal the sick, he doesn't calm the storm, he doesn't raise the dead. We just have to trust him because because we love him. I'm going to ask if you'll stand with me and let me lead us in a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you this morning for these dear brothers and sisters, for the boys and girls that are in here. Thank you for their, for their faithfulness to come to, a, to church at an odd hour, an awkward hour, a difficult hour, and, and, and to leave in really the, the early afternoon. We pray, I pray for them in Jesus' name that they would be drawn ever closer to the feet of Jesus by their faithful discipleship and love of him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.